Um, it's always a privilege to be able to bring God's word um, to, to us as a congregation. But one of the things that I think um, I always wrestle with is when I'm selecting a passage and going, okay, Lord, is this kind of what you want? I need to wrestle with that passage first. Because one thing I don't want to do is just say a bunch of words. I want something that I've had to internalize, think about, and say, okay, Lord, where am I at on this? And I don't always get it right. And I don't always maybe say it the best way. But I pray that this morning as we hear from God's word that you're not necessarily hearing me, you're hearing what is God speaking to you specifically. Last week, Pastor Rick asked the question, what would it be like if we uninhibitedly shared Jesus to to penetrate our community? And what if we sacrificially gave, not just our money, but our time and resources to build deep into new believers? Those are two really great questions. But then I was wondering and going, well, to build new believers of Jesus Christ, we need to have them around us. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about what can our role be in that. The passage of Scripture uh, that I was led to is in 1 Corinthians 9. If you have a device um, or you you have your Bible here, just start to turn there. We're going to get to it in a few minutes. But I want to ask this question. Does anybody know the name David Ray Roberts? Oh, no hands. Okay. Well, first hour didn't. Let me give you a couple clues. Major League outfielder. No? Boston Red Sox world champion. Hey, those of you who are using your device to figure it out, don't, hey, don't yell it out. No. 20, oh, this one will get you. 28th round pick in the 1994 Major League draft. Oh, it wasn't a first round. Well, most of you probably don't know him, but he has a unique story. David is currently the L.A. Dodgers baseball team manager. When he played baseball, he was known for his speed and base-stealing ability. He played for five different teams in ten years. David loved the game of baseball, so after his playing days he had, come, you know, had come to an end, he continued to pursue his dream of coaching and managing in the major league. When the L.A. Dodgers chose him as a manager, many were very surprised because he had only one game of major league experience as a manager. However, those that knew him best were not surprised at all. See, the Dodgers needed a manager that could connect with the players and be able to create a team that worked together and supported each other. No easy task to do (laughs) amongst millionaires. His remarkable run as a manager continues into even this season. In his five completed seasons, though, he's finished five, five times in first place of the NL West. He has went to the World Series three times and won, the, and won it in 2020. For the best major league managers, this is nearly a Hall of Fame career in just five years. But what makes David Roberts unique? Well, two things. First, his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Second, his living and modeling of a of servant leadership in all areas of his life. In an interview with Sports Spectrum magazine, David said this, There's no bigger servant that walked the earth than Jesus Christ. I patterned my life and my leadership in being a servant leader. 
when you can be the manager of the Dodgers and you can clear off plates for your players and coaches and staff and do things like that and serve your coaches and players, I think that goes a long way. And then it trickles down where everyone else is incentivized to serve others. When you get a bunch of people that are talented, have the same mind of winning, and are servers, man, you've got something pretty special. It appears David is willing to do whatever it takes to serve his players. And I found this on a source that is, I mean, reputable beyond reputable, Wikipedia. I'm kidding. There's another quote that speaks volumes about how David's faith is not just this internal piece, but he externalizes it out into the way in which he lives his life. Robert spoke of his faith this way. In 2016, he said this, I stopped trying to be good enough and earn my way into heaven and accepted God's gift of eternal life through his son Jesus Christ in 1988. It wasn't until just a few years ago, though, that I really understood how much God loved me in sending Jesus to die in my place and really started living for him, putting him first in my life, making him Lord. My relationship with Christ is the most important thing in my life. Beyond the game of baseball, though, he gives me lasting joy, contentment, and peace. That's the great thing about allowing Jesus to become Lord. He really knows and wants what is best, in, best for my life. This is just one of many stories I found about people that are in what we could call higher positions that chose to serve rather than rule. They're modeling Jesus' example of being a humble servant. See, a while back I did a series of messages titled, Jesus, the Road Less Traveled which looked into the way Jesus interacted with people in his travels just as he was along the journey. The first message, though, in that, ser- uh, in that series was called The Other Side of Leadership. And it focused on Jesus' nature as a humble servant. I mention this because today's message has some of the same themes. It's about being a humble servant by choice. And yes, I said by choice, not because you have to. It's not a secret what Jesus' purpose was for when he came to earth and live in our neighborhood. It says in Luke 19.10 that Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he came to do. Yes, to seek and to save the lost that didn't know him, that didn't know his father. Well, how did he do that? Well, the Apostle Paul, again, you're going to get, I'm going to give you a lot of references from the Apostle Paul because I want you to see that this is just not one message from 1 Corinthians that he's writing. You see this throughout all of his. But in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8 in the New Living Translation, it says this, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to or grasp. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, others used servant, and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form or made in human likeness, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. See, when Jesus walked the earth, he was misunderstood, he was maligned, he was mistreated, 
all on a regular basis. And I would say even his disciples were confused most of the time. See, most Jews expected this Messiah, the promised deliverer of the Jewish nation, prophesied in the Old Testament of the Bible, that he would come and overthrow these uh, oppressive rulers. So when Jesus revealed that he was the promised Messiah, they thought it meant he would come and rule as a king does and would destroy those wretched Romans. But of course, as God does, <laughs> he turns things upside down and has a completely different approach. We see God the Father sent Jesus, his son, as a servant <laughs> to this world in which they created. Jesus speaks these words from Mark in, verse, uh, in chapter 10, verses 43 to 45. He says, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. There it is. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And again, that word has been translated as servant as well. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See, when we see Jesus' life, and now we're going to see in the Apostle Paul's life, is this heart of a servant. These are two men that, I would say, they're at the top of their game. They're, they're, you know, they're at the top of the food chain, in a sense. But they're willing to release their so-called rights and, and freedoms to serve those that they came in contact with. Why? For the purpose of sharing the great news about a personal relationship with God. I think it's important to give you some background and context because sometimes when we just drop into a passage of Scripture that we haven't been working through, um, we can sometimes lose the context. And so I want to give you some of that. In the book, uh, in the book of Corinthians, he's, Paul's writing to this church in Corinth that he had started up. And Corinth is a city located in present-day Greece. It's about 50 miles west of Athens. Corinth was a major trade route at the time from both the east to the west and the north to the south, which made it very populous and very wealthy. It was also the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. Corinth was what we'd say a mix of cultures. It really began Roman, but then Greeks came, you know, were there, Jews, and then many other races. Leon Morris describes Corinth in this way, and I think it's a good description. It says, it was a very cosmopolitan place. It was an important city. It was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. There was a pronounced tendency for its inhabitants to indulge their desires of whatever sort. See, the Apostle Paul now, let's look at him because I don't want to assume you know too much about him. Many of you do. But the Apostle Paul was a former Pharisee. He was a religious leader. Not just some religious leader. He was one of the upper crust religious leaders. He was a persecutor of Christians. He even approved and looked on at the stoning of Stephen in Acts 8. And after his encounter with Jesus, 
miraculous encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, all things changed for Paul in Acts 9. He became one of the most influential leaders in the early church. God gave Paul the assignment to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, anybody but the Jews. That was his assignment. He was a Roman citizen by birth, which allowed him full rights in the Roman territory. Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 13 of the New Testament books. 1 Corinthians was actually one that he wrote from Ephesus. And it's called by some the warning letter. The church in Corinth was struggling to stay true to the teachings that Paul had brought them. And and the church and its people, they they were not behaving and, and they were not getting along. People were choosing to, again, go back to their old ways and indulge in selfish acts and being more concerned about themselves than sharing and serving others that Paul had modeled to them. So in the first 18 verses of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul shares about he's laying aside his rights and he's doing this as an example to say, I want you, I'm going to show you how this is done. He's modeling what he's teaching, which is so important. He could have claimed all these rights and used it, I guess, as a type of resume, But he chose to relinquish them, knowing that his words and his ministry would be modeling much more closely to the life of Jesus, the servant. So let's read in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. Now as I read this, some of you are going to go, I'm a little confused. We will get to kind of walking through it a little bit to get you into it. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant or slave, as some translations state, to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And then to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. See, there's two key themes that we should pick up in these verses. What we see is first, Paul's heart of a servant. And second, we see Paul's heart for the lost. But if we go back to verse 19, we see that this is a choice Paul's making, to be a servant. He wasn't made a servant, he chose to. He says, I have made myself a servant. So he's saying, I am doing this on my own. Somebody else isn't forcing me to do this. Paul has the right, though, as apostle, as a Roman citizen. I mean, he's got all of this and he gives it up. Because his ultimate purpose we see there is to win people to Jesus Christ. But it would be, I think, easy if I just skipped and went down to that part. But the first verses we see why 
for though I am free from all. See, we see that Paul is not bound by all these things that the world has kind of put on people. He's making it clear from the beginning that he is spiritually free, which comes from his relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul continually focuses on this, this truth and then about eternal freedom is only found in who? Christ alone. Now, verse 20, I find it interesting since Paul's primary audience was typically Gentiles. Who does he start speaking to? Jews. And so in verse 20, Paul says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Okay, what's going on here? Paul was a Jew of Jews. In his former years, he had it all when it came to notoriety and stature. But notice that he says, I became as a Jew, or some even translations use it, became like a Jew. Even though his relationship was to Jesus Christ, he had the freedom to no longer live under the Jewish law or the law of Moses. Paul knew he was no longer under that same law, but he was under grace that came through Christ. This was a key teaching of Paul, and we notice it that he writes it in Romans 8 as well, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul has a different way of approaching life, doesn't he? So basically what Paul was saying is that he was willing to conform to the practices of the old law because it didn't compromise his beliefs in Jesus. We see that in Timothy's circumcision in Acts 16. Poor Timothy. But, sorry, I digress. By doing this, though, it afforded him opportunities to share the truth of Jesus Christ without creating barriers but it opened doors. So now we see, as we move into the next verse, now he's going to address the Gentiles. He says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So we see, he's not saying, I can just do whatever I want. Paul wants the Corinthian church and the future readers to understand that he's not under the law, but he wants it to be clear that he is not just some lawless teacher that can do whatever he does, whatever he desires. For the Gentiles, he was not going to bring in Jewish law and beliefs and force them on them, like many of the Jewish religious leaders tried to do to the Gentiles. He was going to teach them about the faith and grace that God offers through Jesus Christ. And again, now I would have figured Paul will stay focused on those Gentiles, but he comes back. And continues to direct his comments and teachings at this point. Okay, But again, in verse 22, what does he do? He goes back to the Jews, directs his comments, primarily saying, all right, there's many divisions that now have broken out over the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, uh, the indulgence in sexual immoral, uh, immoral behavior. That was just to name a couple. But in verse 22, what does he say? To the weak, I became... Weak, that I might win the weak. 
I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. See, Paul knew that he was not restricted by the law of Moses or even we could say the Roman and pagan practices of the time. For example, he would abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols, which was an abomination to Jews, if it caused one of them to stumble and to fall. Even though for him, it wasn't a problem. He wanted to reach them for the gospel. He knew that if there was a question of conscience for someone, that it could maybe get in the way of his sharing the message of Jesus Christ. Then we see Paul's willingness to enter into relationships and meet people right where they are. He took the time to understand them. He didn't demand they keep you know, up some kind of standard first and then he's like, oh, yeah, you're good enough now so I can meet with you. He trusts that his message of truth and grace about Jesus Christ will go forward and he doesn't want there to be any roadblocks that stop the gospel's progress. See, he loves the people of Corinth. And as a result, he, does, he lovingly rebukes the church for losing focus. The least loving thing I think Paul could have done was to not say anything at all to the church. But something that I've always appreciated about Paul as I've studied his life and writings He's a guy that led by example. He was never the guy that said, do as I say, not as I do. I said earlier that Paul in this passage and all of his epistles that his ultimate goal was just like Jesus, to seek and to save the lost. Paul had a heart for the lost, especially the Gentiles, just as Jesus did. But let's go back and look at what we just covered Did you notice what Paul repeated six times in verses 19 through 23? This theme of to win as many as possible. In verse 19, that I might win more of them. In verse 20, there's two of them, in order to win Jews and that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. When something's repeated that many times, it's pretty important. But win, what are we winning? See, Paul was sharing the good news about Jesus wherever he could and by any means possible. He knew it was the work, though, of the Holy Spirit that changed hearts. But he knew it was his calling to share Jesus with anyone he could that he was led to. He also knew that the church was critical to this happening. Well, why does Paul do it? And why should we do it? Well, we read that in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Kenneth Chafin says this of Paul, Paul was not a chameleon who took on the moral and spiritual climate of his environment. Rather, he was a people lover who did not let cultural or religious differences because of barriers 
between him and the persons for who Christ died. Because he was a servant of Christ. He was an able, or he was able to identify with and love different kinds of people just as his Lord had. See, Paul in these verses has laid out the plan to win the lost. He knows that the church needs to model Jesus' love and grace. The Corinthian church was not doing a good job of that because they had returned to their old ways and they looked no different than the world around them. But Paul has one last thing he wants the church in Corinth in this section to understand. So Paul uses an illustration that would help them to understand and accomplish this. See, in Corinth, it was part of Greece, as I had said, which is known as the home of the Olympics. But in Corinth, they had a similar set of athletic games that happened in the off years, in a a sense as a preparation for the Olympics. This was a huge deal. And all those reading or hearing these words from Paul would have understood this illustration. So in in verse 24 and following, it says, Do you not know that in the race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Well, let me summarize. Paul tells the readers that there is a race that we all must win. How well do we run when we're in this race? Will we determine how hard we prepare ourselves? He is simply telling us that we need not only run, or that we need not only run, but run in such a way to receive the prize. Well, what's this prize? This prize or this wreath? Well, it's our eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It doesn't fade. It doesn't die. It lasts forever. Anyone can enter a race, right? But those that have trained will most likely win. We're able to run this race with Jesus to win. Okay, that's our goal. Not just to participate and get a ribbon because you were in the race, or just to be present. I know it's hard for me not to just get through each day and I guess hope most things go well for me and my family and those around me, you know, just showing up. But I've heard the saying that 75% of something is you just showing up. Well, of course, it's important to show up. But the key is to show up and do something intentional for Jesus. We need to discipline ourselves. Paul says in Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He's thinking of the prize, this eternal peace. And then he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He was singularly focused I think in our country it seems 
we're surrounded by distractions that I think pull us away from a lot of the things that are most important. Living our lives intentionally for the purpose of winning as many as possible for Christ ends up being kind of a result. Or not the result that we want. I also note that Scripture is very clear that it's not a work of man. And I said this earlier. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit that transforms the human heart. See, our role is to listen to the Spirit and do as he asks us to do. He may speak to you in prayer, through the reading of his word, or even another person. But maybe, just maybe, you're currently in a place where you don't seem to hear from God at all. Seems like he's a long ways away. I ask you, even as I'm speaking, just take some time to just talk to God about where you're at. Be honest with him. Confess to him those things that essentially you've, you've put ahead of him and ask him to speak to you, whatever that may look like. Sometimes we just need to go to a place, I think for all of us in here, it might be we just need to go to a place that's silent and we can just listen. You know, it's like we have this noise in our head But pray for God to remove those thoughts, that noise, and replace it with his thoughts. I know for me, and I don't know, maybe for you, there's something that makes me (laughs) want the rewards without paying the price in our effort and time. Paul wants us to remember that this prize is worth it, and it's worth the effort. It's worth the work because it's eternal. But see, it takes a focused determination to live in the Spirit and by the power of the Spirit. And so as Paul, as I read those verses, he highlights some things that I think I just kind of drew out. In verse 25, he says, be self-controlled is what I think his main point is. See, what are we willing to give up for the greater sake of Jesus Christ? Do you, it says, do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. But here's the important part. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Basically, nothing is out of that. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So we have to be self-controlled. Setting aside those things that are not important or those things that can interfere we need to stay focused, verse 26, I think is telling us. We, not, you know, we get distracted so easily. So it says, do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above not on things that are on earth. We need to stay focused. We need to look there. And then Jesus' very words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Singular focus. We must have a kingdom focus, which means we keep our eyes on Jesus as much as we possibly can. Because we want to seek his good pleasing, and perfect will. Verse 27, I think, kind of lends itself to this idea of self-discipline, right? 
It's our, desi- it's our own desires and wants that can disqualify us. And Paul did not want to be disqualified, and he didn't want those members in Corinth to be disqualified, and he doesn't want us to be disqualified. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There's actually a version of, the, uh, of this verse that says, I pummel my body and make it a slave. This means we put the work in to being a good example of Christ. When Christians look no different than the world, we have truly disqualified ourselves. It takes constant effort and focus. It means we need to be committed to praying, to reading God's word, and to re-reaching out to the lost world around us. Our lives need to look different to the world. They need to see that we love God on a full-time basis, not just when it's convenient. That we love one another as a body of believers like no one else. And that we love and care for those that don't know Jesus yet. That means we need to become servants. Willing to give up our so-called rights and freedoms. Why? So some may believe. We need to join people in their story. We need to develop transformational relationships with them rather than transactional. This is not some one-and-done project or appointment. This needs to be a lifestyle. I heard a story about Hudson Taylor. He was a 51-year-old or 51-year missionary to China in the late 1800s. He was largely responsible for the rapid growth of Christianity in China by way of the Holy Spirit. It didn't start that way, though. Even though Hudson was willing to bring vast amounts of medical supplies to them, they still were not willing to listen to him. It was not until he realized that he needed to become like them. So he began to dress like them. He learned their language. He participated in their customs. Once he had become a Chinese person, he then found his message of Christ was able to move forward rapidly. Now remember, this has nothing to do with compromising your beliefs or values. But what it is about is about having the heart to do whatever it takes to reach out to those that don't currently have a relationship with Christ. So today we're left with a question. What am I willing to become or do to reach as many as possible? Is your neighbor into fishing and you're not? Learn about fishing. Go fishing. Is your coworker working on a project on his house? Insist on helping. Is your friend into dirt track racing? Go to the races with him. Is your friend coaching a soccer team? See if you can help. I'm sure you can. Insist on helping. Consider joining even a a local organization in the community that helps people and rub shoulders with other volunteers that don't know Jesus. One of my favorite things I get to do, and you guys are going to go, oh, there it is. Here's this coaching thing. I love coaching football. And each fall, I get to do that at Central Lakes College. Go Raiders. Of course, I love the game of football. 
But even more than that, and what's more important, I get to be around the coaches and players. I get to join in their world and hear about what's going on in their lives, their struggles, and even get to celebrate their successes. I do my best to care for them, to set a good example, and even share about my faith. I have even had some of them show up here on Sunday morning. Does it cost me something? Absolutely. 20 plus hours a week. But I wouldn't trade spending time with those players and coaches for anything. See, you need to pray. I need to pray that God would give you an ear to hear and a heart of love and compassion for a person that needs Jesus. The key is that you focus on their story and not your own. God will open the door when it's right for you to share. And when we do this, we are becoming a servant because we sacrifice our time doing things that are not for ourselves. But as Paul said, it's for the sake of the gospel and to enlarge God's kingdom. One person at a time. It's a battle to sacrifice. It doesn't come naturally to most of us. So the question is, do you have a friend, a co-worker, a family member that doesn't know Christ? If you don't, you really need to find one. No matter your age, you need to be intentional about reaching out and loving those that don't know Jesus. If you don't, who will? Don't expect someone else to do it. Eternal separation from Jesus is a serious thing and we need to treat it as such. So what do we need to do first? Pray and ask God to open your eyes to one, maybe two, three people that you can begin to be intentional with. Two, start praying for them and asking God to give you a way to connect with them, to show you a way. Three, don't be in a rush. This isn't a project. This is a relationship. Take your time and listen. And listen. And when you think you're done listening, listen some more. And fourth, be ready at all times to share how Jesus has transformed your life because they may ask. So practice your testimony. But even more, share what God has been teaching you and how you see him working in your life, transforming it. And another quote from Kenneth Chafin said, I believe that God has made life so that those who think less of their own rights and privileges and more about others in the kingdom of God feel fulfilled here and now. I think that is so true. So when we become a servant like Jesus and like Paul, our lives become more fulfilled. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your Son. Thank you for the Spirit that leads and prompts us. I pray that you would allow us to hear from your Spirit, to know who we can begin work with. Lord, I know there's many that are in this room and as well as on live stream that are already doing exactly what your Word has asked them to do. And so, Lord, I pray that they would see your hand in it and that you would open doors. And Lord, that we would be bold about our faith, 
Because it is the most important thing. We have moved from death to life eternal. We thank you for that. We pray this in your name. Amen.